We'll be in John chapter 18, verses 12 to 27 this morning. And I, I just want to say to all of you what I said to my family this morning. Um, one of the keys to being a Christian, one of the, perhaps the key to living as a Christian is to see Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you don't have a vision of Christ and his beauty and his goodness and his power, his sovereignty and his love, then how can you live as a Christian? So, if, if, if what we do here is we come and we come and we see Christ truly, then how can we, seeing him, not be conformed to be like him? How can we, seeing him, not be submitting ourselves to him? So let us see him this morning. Uh, Last week we saw David's greater son, Jesus, go out of Jerusalem, cross to the other side of the brook Kidron, and if you were here you know, that's loaded with meaning, right? Where there was a garden into which Jesus entered with his disciples. Now, when David went out of Jerusalem and crossed the brook Kidron, he was running away. He was fleeing as well. He ought to have been fleeing. When Jesus goes out of Jerusalem, crosses the brook Kidron, he's not running. He's going purposefully to meet his betrayer. David's been betrayed. He's been rejected by his own people. He's been betrayed by one he trusted. We saw all that, and he's running. Jesus has been betrayed. He's being rejected by his own people, and he goes out to meet them. John crafts his whole account of the betrayal in order to emphasize basically exclusively the sovereign authority of Jesus. As the only one truly in control. This is the Jesus that would be held before our eyes this morning. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went out of the garden and said to them, Whom do you seek? And when they said they were seeking Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus answered, What was his answer? I am he. Ego eimi. Now, just I'll say it now, just so we know. Okay. Ami means I am he. No, no. Ami just says I am. Okay? I am. Ego, which you may recognize from the comparable word in Latin, is I. Now, Ami already has I in it. I am. When you put ego before Ami, it's I am. We could say I. I am. Now, and, and then there's an assumed he we think. Because they said, we're looking for Jesus of the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I, I am he. That's what's going on there in the Greek. We're going to hear that a lot this morning. This unexpected sight of Jesus coming out to meet them. They thought they were going to have to go flush him out of the garden. Here comes Jesus to meet them in the dark, right? His unexpected addressing them first with his own question, and then the unexpected authority of his self-identification 
are so overwhelming and so unnerving to those who come to arrest him that they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said again, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that ego eimi, I, I am he. Twice, Jesus identifies himself, not just as the one they're looking for. Yeah, I'm the one you're looking for. No, more than that. I'm the one who is who I say that I am. Yes, the Nazarene, but yes, also the revelation of the Father, the only begotten Son of God. I am he, or more simply, I am. When we hear Jesus saying this today, this is what we hear, okay? Jesus comes out of the garden. He says, I am he. We hear him saying this. I am the one you want. I am the one who must drink this cup. I am the one you must take and hang on a cross. I am the one who must suffer and die. I am the one who reveals the Father. And how do I reveal the Father? By drinking this cup he has given me to drink and that he has given only to me, to me, to drink. I am the one you want. I am he. Oh, that's a rich and a full I am he. If therefore it is me, and in the Greek the word order is me comes first, and so I think that's the emphasis. If therefore it is me you want, you seek, let these go their way. Okay, hang on to that. Okay, Jesus, I am he, has rendered the disciples irrelevant. This is not their hour. It's his hour. That's why John doesn't mention that all the disciples left Jesus and fled. John does not tell us anything about them fleeing because... That's not his point. His point is not the fear of the disciples. It's not the failure of the disciples. His point is the sovereign dismissal of Jesus. Let these go their way. You'd almost wonder if anyone even fled. They probably said, oh, Jesus said, we're to go. And so they left. Now, we know that's not what happened. But, but the picture is of the sovereign authority and the dismissal that Jesus gives to his disciples. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 16. Behold, an hour is coming and has now come for you to be scattered, each to his own place, and to leave me alone. Jesus is not having a pity party. Jesus never had a pity party. When he says to leave me alone, he means that I need to be alone, right? Now, there's another sense in which they are abandoning him, but that's not Jesus' only point. His point is that I must be alone. Only I can do this work. And yet I am not alone, he said, because the Father is with me. So without excusing the disciples, Jesus is describing the way things must be. You know, If the disciples go die with Jesus now, that's just a fruitless waste of life. 
If they stand by Jesus now in his sufferings, well, they can't, because that would require a faith and an understanding that they'll only get later when all their questions have been taken away. So, Jesus says to those who have come to arrest him, listen to it again. I told you that I, I am he, so if it is me you seek, let these go their way, in order that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled. Of those you have given me, I lost not one. So Jesus' point, John's point, is not the disciples are such terrible people for running. It is the sovereign dismissal of Jesus. Secondly, his point is not how the disciples failed Jesus, but how in your handout, Jesus protected and guarded his disciples even as he went to lay his life down for them. Jesus knows that only, you know what it is, right? But I put it there for your blank for you to meditate on for the time it takes you to write it. Only he can drink this cup. And that for the sake of his disciples and for the sake of all that the Father has given to him, that's you and me here today, He must drink this cup alone. Though he isn't alone, because the Father is with him. All right, that's not just intro. That's part of the sermon today. And without that, we can't understand fully what's about to happen next. Verses 12 to 14. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. So just a, a little bit of background. Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. So it's been about 15 years since the Romans deposed Annas from the high priesthood. You can imagine how the Jews feel about Romans deposing the high priest. That's not their spot. It's not their place. And in fact, the Torah said that the priesthood, high priesthood was lifelong appointment. How can you be deposed? But the, that's what the Romans did. So even though he's been deposed... He still holds a lot of power, a lot of influence, and people still called him the high priest. Josephus tells us five of Annas' sons all served as high priest, not to mention Caiaphas, his son-in-law, as high priest. So this, this guy, you know, he wields a lot of... And the high priesthood wasn't just a religious thing, it was a political thing in that day. So he holds a lot of political clout, a lot of political power, We can understand then why they bring him to Jesus to Annas first. But in the end, if you want to get Jesus condemned, you'll have to bring him to the Roman appointed high priest, who's Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the president of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Now, what's interesting is John, John never tells us about this trial before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but John skips it entirely. He simply reminds us, as his way of saying, I'm not going to deal with that, 
Well, you already know the outcome of that, don't you? The outcome of the formal trial already was decided when Caiaphas advised the Jews at an earlier meeting of the Sanhedrin that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the nation. So basically, when John says they brought him to Annas, who was father-in-law of Caiaphas, he's saying, yeah, remember, that trial has already been, it was already determined in chapter 11, when the Sanhedrin met, determined he should die, and Caiaphas said, it's better he should die than the nation. On the one hand, then, he reminds us the outcome is determined. Now watch this. On the other hand, what is, what is John doing? He's reminding us, that it's not Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin who are in control. If you go back to John 11, which John expects that we will, Caiaphas did not say this about one man dying on behalf of the people from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, we're reminded again of Jesus' words to those who came to arrest him. I am he. In the unfolding of this wicked, evil plan of men, they've already determined the outcome of the trial before the trial ever started. And the unfolding of their wicked plan is the unfolding of the saving, redeeming plan of God. That's just not a cool thing to say. That's a gloriously beautiful thing to say. It is not wicked and evil men in control, but God. So also Jesus, as he submits himself to his Father's will. We continue then in verses 15 to 16. Simon Peter was following Jesus. And so was another disciple. Now, that disciple, I mean, it's amazing how stubbornly John refuses to name this disciple, right? That disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Now Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all tell us about Peter following at a distance. But none of them tell us about another disciple. Only John tells us about another one. I believe, not with everyone, but... I do believe that, first of all, this disciple is one of the twelve who were with Jesus in the garden. I believe this disciple was John, the author of this gospel. You can go back and... But I believe everyone knew this was John. John's not naming him, but everyone knows he's John. It's not like John is saying, I'm keeping this big secret. So that's another message. John, the anonymous evangelist, was an introductory message if you want to read, go back and read that, it's on our website, or listen to it. So why does John include this little detail? I ask you, why do you think he includes this detail? No one else does. 
One commentator writes, certainly not just to explain how Peter managed to get past the woman at the gate. He did it, rather, to focus on the other disciple. As the one before whose eyes and with whose cooperation all this took place. In other words, as the one who saw all this. John inserts himself here to emphasize his role as an eyewitness. I don't know if you remember, I I don't know, I don't think they still have this. I just remember it from my childhood, this idea of eyewitness news, right? Right? It's eyewitness news that gives it this sense of authenticity, that it's to be trusted, right, in that sense. And here's the reality that all of the gospel accounts are ultimately founded on eyewitness testimony. And so in this case, it's John himself who entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, the one who writes this description for us. It's John himself who looked, who looked back, and you can imagine this, he looks back and he sees Peter at the door, at the gate, still standing on the outside. He sees Peter standing there. It's John himself who's writing this, who, who, who says, he went out to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And so now it's John himself who can give us his own eyewitness account of what happened next. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples? Now remember, I think there's just a beautiful touch to this, that John writes this as one who stood there, saw it, and heard it, and remembered it. The servant girl's question tells us that it seems John is known to her, and probably also to the other bystanders, as one of Jesus' disciples. What does she say? Are you not also one of this man's disciples? I believe the implication there is that she knows John is one of his disciples. But John apparently doesn't feel he's in any very great danger. But, and here's the thing, his identity was known from the moment he walked up to the gate, right? That's how he got in, because they knew who he was. John has never had anything to hide. He walks up to the gate, they say, I know who you are. Even if they know he's a disciple, it's not like John ever was, um, was unknown to them or had anything to hide. It was known from the beginning. Peter, on the other hand, he's only suspected. Psychologically, that makes all the difference in the world. Not only that, but now he has been asked before everyone to identify himself. That's a very different situation than the one John is in. Furthermore, it is not John who drew his sword in outside of the garden and attacked the servant of the high priest. John didn't do that. Peter did. And as we'll learn in a moment, one of the relatives who was there, I believe, when Peter did that, the relatives of the one whose ear Peter cut off, is there in the courtyard. We know how easy it is for words to come out of our mouths, almost, but not quite, before we're even aware we've spoken them. Do we not all know what that is? That's how I think it was with Peter. Peter. 
Are you not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now we know from the other Gospels, Peter said a lot more than that. Matthew tells us, he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. Mark says, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. Luke says, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Put it all together, and he said a significant amount. John, who was there with Peter in the courtyard, who saw and heard everything, gives us the briefest, shortest account of all. He said, I am not. You could add the word on the end. I am not he. John also is the only one to tell us of Jesus' words to those who came to arrest him. I am he. Here then is John's contrast between Jesus' I, I am he, and Peter's, I am not, or even, I am not he. Now, what's John's point in, in bringing out this contrast? Is it to show us what a failure Peter is? Well, Peter's denial, first of all, represents the condition of all the disciples. By the way, who is the only one other than one other disciple who was brave enough to follow Jesus into the courtyard? Where's everyone else? They've all fled each to his own home. As for John, being known to the high priest, he was never really put to the test as Peter was. How would John have fared? And having never drawn his sword in defense of his Lord, he had far less to fear than Peter did. So Peter is not the scapegoat, bad Peter. Peter is the representative. The primary lesson of Peter is not, and I say the primary lesson of Peter, is not, don't be like Peter. The primary lesson of Peter is rather, see how alone Jesus was and how alone he had to be. Only Jesus understood what was being accomplished and only Jesus knew what he was doing. So when Jesus went out from the garden and he said to those who had come to arrest him, whom do you seek? And when they all answered, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus said, what did he say? I, I, I am he. I am the one you've come for. I'm the one who must drink this cup. I am the one who must take and hang on a cross. I am the one who must suffer and die. I am the one who will reveal the Father by drinking this cup he has given me to drink. I am he. If therefore it is me you seek, let these go their way. When the servant girl questioned Peter, So, Jesus' I am he was for the sake of his disciples. When we understand that, we can read this in a new light. 
The servant girl questioned Peter as to whether he was one of Jesus' disciples. And in the fear and anxiety of that moment, having just been told by Jesus to put his drawn sword back into its sheath, Peter said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Who, who, who remembers that it was, who can tell us that it was cold that night in the courtyard? Someone who was standing there, cold himself. And so here again are the recollections of an eyewitness. Someone who was there, who has this scene vividly fixed in his, in his memory. On the one hand, Peter's cold. He wants to warm himself. On the other hand, Peter's hiding. And what's the best way to hide yourself in a courtyard? Blend in with everyone else if you can. But now we leave Peter for a moment and return to Jesus. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him. Listen to his answer. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question first. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. So what's Jesus doing? Well, first, he answers Annas' accusation, his implied accusation. Basically what he says is, anything that I said privately to my disciples was all of a piece with what I said publicly to everyone. So I do not have any separate secret teaching, which it seems to be Annas is implying. What are you telling your disciples off on the side? What do you expect them to be doing? It's like, no, I've said everything the same publicly and to them. It's all of the same piece. Second, Jesus exposes Annas' hypocrisy. Do you really not know why I've been arrested? Have you arrested me without any legal ground? But if you lack evidence, and if you lack testimony, you can go anywhere in Israel to find what you're looking for. Why, then, haven't you done so? Now, Jesus speaks very forthrightly here, doesn't he? He's, there is some rebuke in his words, but we have to be careful not to imagine he's speaking belligerently. He's just speaking as the one with the true, what? Authority. And so as the questioner becomes the questioned, and the questioned becomes the questioner, what do we see, brothers and sisters? We see again Jesus as the one whose life is not taken away from him, but who has the authority to lay it down that he may take it again. Brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus as the one in authority, we see him as the one in authority for our sake. As the one who will give his all 
to save sinners like us. Jesus has answered Annas' implied accusation. He's exposed his hypocrisy, but he has done more than this. Now, I wonder if you can see, what else has Jesus done? Let's listen to his words one more time. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. Which is as much as to say, I am the one who is, who I have always said that I am. How many I's and me's did you hear? In Jesus' reply, and once again in this I am he, what is Jesus doing? We see him guarding. We see him protecting those whom the Father has given for him to him and for whom he is about to lay down his life. What's he saying? Annas asked about his disciples. And Jesus is telling Annas, there's nothing you can learn from my disciples, two of whom are outside in the courtyard right now. There's nothing you can learn from my disciples that you can't learn from the Jews who heard me teach publicly in the synagogues and in the temple. This is not Peter's hour. This is not John's hour. This is not their time to take the stand. This is Jesus' hour. And it's his alone. Yes, they left him alone. And yes, that's the way it had to be. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby gave Jesus a slap in the face, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now in John, that's the last word ever spoken between Jesus and the Jews. It's like all that conflict that's been building since chapter 5, it all reaches its finale in this word and in this question that Jesus asks the one who strikes him. If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. What is Jesus saying? Have I not spoken openly to the world? Are there not hundreds and thousands who can testify to what I have said? Is it not true that questioning me now after I've already been arrested is hypocritical? I am who I have always said that I am. Why then? Why do you Strike me. That's a good question. When it comes to the guy who struck him, the answer for him is he's a sinner and rebellious and hates God. But there's another deeper reason why we see these things happening. John says, so Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. What does John want us to think about when we think of Caiaphas, the high priest? The one who prophesied. The one who prophesied Jesus was going to die for the nation. 
that he would be struck, that he would be wounded, that he would be ultimately nailed to a cross, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might, that he might gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. So let me ask you again, why did they strike him? Why does Anna send Jesus bound to Caiaphas? Here's the answer, because this is the cup the Father has given Jesus to drink. And, and here is, a, is an awesome mystery. Why did they strike him? Why is he sent to Caiaphas? Because Jesus himself has said to Annas in so many words, I, I am he. I am the one who must suffer and die. I am the one who drinks this cup. I am the one that you must hang on a cross. And so in response to Jesus, I am he, Annas sent him to Caiaphas, who prophesied he would die on behalf of the nation. The last we heard of Peter is that he was standing and warming himself. So now, John resumes almost as though almost as though he wrote this, and then he said, oh, let's stick this little thing in here, and then let's, right? So, because so, he picks up right where he left off. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. That's the second time we've been told that. The last time we left off, now he picks up. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, they describe all three of Peter's denials consecutively. One after the other. He denied him, he denied him, he denied him. Story over. The story of Peter's denials is one story. Only John interweaves Peter's denials with Jesus' testimony before Annas. I think you can see now why he does this. So that by the contrast between Jesus, I am he. And Peter's, I am not. We might see how alone Jesus was, not simply so that we might pity or feel bad for him, but so that we might be reminded of how alone he had to be. And so that we might see how even in Jesus, I am he, what was he doing? He was guarding and protecting Peter and all the disciples the Father had given him, when they were not only the most helpless, but even the most faithless. It was not they who could protect Jesus, but Jesus who must protect them. It was not they who would lay down their life for Jesus, but Jesus who lays his life down for them. So, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. And once again, John gives us the shortest version. He said, I am not. Two times Jesus said, I am he. Twice Peter has said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again 
and immediately a rooster crowed. And that's the end of the story, at least for now, of Peter. It was not more than 12 hours earlier that Peter had said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, and the emphasis in the Greek goes like this, will you lay down your life for me? Implication, no, I will lay down my life for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus knows, he knows that only he, key word, I don't know if that's in your handout, but it should have been a blank if it was, circle it, bold it, underline it. Only he can drink this cup, and that he must drink this cup alone, though he isn't alone because the Father is with him. So, In Jesus, I am he. What do you see? I mean, just let let those words resound in your your mind, in your heart. Let Let them echo in your heart. In his I am he, what do we see? We see his sovereign authority, yes. Yes, we do, but we see his sovereign authority all in the service of his obedient submission to his Father's will. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And there's more. In Jesus, I am he. I, I am he. We see his sovereign authority all in the service of his love for the disciples and his love for us. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That was the point of his, I am he. In Peter's, I am not, we see how we're all in need of Jesus, I am he. Of the salvation only he can accomplish. In a sense, there's a point in which and of the protecting and guarding that only he can provide. Do you see Jesus? See, this is a portrait of Jesus that's painted by the inspired painter, the inspired writer of scripture. And this is a portrait of Jesus that we are privileged to hold before our eyes. Because the more we hold this portrait of Jesus before our eyes through the week, through the, through the days of our lives, the more, the more we come to love and be like him and submit ourselves to him. But there's one other lesson here. And you know, so often we spend our time in these messages, and maybe it would be more appropriate in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's point here is not to emphasize Peter's failure and don't be like Peter. I mean, his point is Jesus had to be alone. 
What did they understand at that time? Only Jesus could do this. And in fact, in Jesus, I am he, he was guarding and protecting the disciples, even in their, I am not, right? But it is because we understand now. Jesus, I am he. Peter didn't understand his I am he. He heard him say, I am he. He didn't get it all. We get it. We hear him say it. We understand. And because we understand, we can now stand the test, not of our own strength and courage, but of the understanding we've been given by God through the spirit that dwells within us. We can stand the test. Peter was not yet able to stand. But that Peter did stand later. So I, I like it. This, 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 I don't know. You have to think about this. Because of Jesus, I am he. Because of that, we can now confess him boldly before the world without fear. Peter didn't yet have this vision of Christ before his eyes. That we have before our eyes, Peter, could not possibly have this vision of Christ before his eyes. That we have before our eyes, because we have this vision of Christ before us, we can now stand the test. Peter was not yet able to stand. We can confess him boldly before the world without fear. Because of Jesus, I am he. We can now proclaim to all the world without fear or shame that we are his. May God give us grace every day of our lives to confess him and not be ashamed. It's the same Peter, the very same man who denied Jesus three times, who said, I am not, who wrote these words to the exiles who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter writes, who is there to harm you? <laughs> it's, like, it's like he's writing to the old Peter. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their fear. And do not be troubled. And here's the key. Peter has learned long ago that this is the key. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. as the one who is who he says that he is, as the Christ, the vision of whom you always hold before your eyes, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and reverence. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, O Lord, we bow down. We bow down together in worship before our Lord Jesus Christ, whose sovereign words, I, I am he, were all for the sake of protecting and guarding the disciples whom he loved. And even for the sake of all of us whom you have given to Jesus. So, Lord, we pray now that you would, you would enable us to have this Christ before us, always. 
And that as we gaze upon his sovereignty, his goodness, his love, his beauty, that we'd be changed, that we wouldn't be the same. And that as a result of this vision that we see, that, that Peter at that time could not yet see, we would be able to boldly confess Jesus always to a world that watches and even to a world that demands an answer. We thank you, Lord, that that the sovereign authority of Jesus, even in his sufferings, is what accomplished our salvation. We ask and pray these things, and, and thanking you now for this meal that we can partake of together. What a joy. The true finale, as it were, of our week to share in this together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.